0: You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com
1: Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great and Oz has spoken. Who are you?
2: I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. I'm the man behind the curtain. Who pulls the strings Got my finger on the button But my mind's on other things I'm the most impressive person No one's ever really seen
3: Oh
4: In the shadow of the spotlight Always waiting in the wings I'm ready
3: for my close-up When the fans fed-
5: Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 4th of July, 2010. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners and ask them all, as always, to check into my websites, including the flagship website, CorbettReport.com, as well as the sister websites of The Corbett Report, al reportagebook.com, climategate.tv, and New World Also please help to support those websites that help to collect, syndicate, distribute, and otherwise get the word out about the Corbett Report, including zero point radioforall.net, archive.org, media com, tragedyandhope.com, and tv.globalresearch.ca. I would like once again to give a heartfelt thank you to all of those who continue to support the Corbett Report both with your incredible words, actions, deeds, and of course also the monetary donations that continue to come into the Corbett Report. And I received a recent donation from someone who is unemployed and does not have much money to spare, but said that he wanted to support the work and it was the least he could do. Stories like that are absolutely incredible and touching, but I do want to stress that there are other ways than monetary support for you to support The Corbett Report, including, of course, just burning copies of the episodes and onto CDs and handing them out to people, or emailing the links uh, to a various Corbett Report media around to your friends, or simply just taking the information from The Corbett Report and spread it, spreading it around either through your own auspices or through water cooler chats or however you want to do it to just get the word out about the information. But as a way of helping people to support the Corbett Report without needing to spend a single penny, I have a new idea that I'd like to try out on this week and see if it works, and if so, maybe we can use it again in the future. And that is to uh, attempt to use the audience to help me secure some guests for upcoming work that I'm interested in doing, who may be reticent to do so, uh, just because uh, the Corbett Report might not seem like a big media entity to people looking at it from the outside. But as I know from the stats, there are now tens of thousands of people downloading this podcast every week, and I know that we can make a difference together. So I'd like to call on the support of listeners out there this week, if you're listening to the on the week of the 4th of July, 2010, please take a moment, just two minutes of your time, to go to maxkaiser.com, K-E-I-S-E-R, maxkaiser.com, and find the contact info and send a short email to Max Kaiser telling him that you would like him to appear on Economics 101. I've been trying to set him up for an interview on Economics 101 for quite a while now, but have not had success in that endeavor, so perhaps if he hears from a few Corbett Report listeners that they'd like to hear him on Economics 101, we can persuade him to be, be on as a guest. And I think that would be good for everyone because Max Kaiser is always entertaining and informative. So if you're interested, please go to maxkaiser.com and send a short email. Keep it short and respectful and to the point and tell him that If you like the work, tell him that you like his work and that you'd like to hear him on Economics 101 with the Corbett Report. And if you do so, and if that's successful this week, perhaps we can use that again in the future to get other guests on the program. So once again, thank you in advance to all those people who help out in that way. And now, let's get straight to today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 4th of July 2010. And now for the real news. In the news this week, pressure continues to mount for a public inquiry into police tactics at this year's G20 in Toronto, Canada, as details continue to emerge about the illegal tactics used against protesters, concerned citizens and bystanders in Canada's most populous city. On Tuesday, it emerged that special police powers that the media reported had been given to police for the duration of the summit, powers that the Globe and Mail suggested were unlimited, had in fact never been given. Although a temporary regulation was passed in secret on June 2nd, making the fenced-off security zone around the summit subject to the Ontario Public Works Protection Act, the so-called 5-metre zone that supposedly gave police the right to demand identification from anyone within 5 metres of the fence never existed. When asked on Tuesday if the five-meter rule had been in effect, Toronto Police Chief Bill Blair said, quote, "No, but I was trying to keep the criminals out." End quote. Meanwhile, footage continues to emerge demonstrating that the so-called black bloc anarchists responsible for the damage to storefronts and torching of police decoy cars were in fact agent provocateurs being used by the police forces to justify a clampdown on peaceful protesters. Footage has now emerged of police moving back from the decoy cars and then looking on as protesters moved in and began destroying them and eventually setting them on fire.
0: It's just a
4: photo
3: op. We can do better it's, than this. It's just a photo
0: op. Exactly. Yeah, but it's not to our advantage. You don't understand. Just you, you don't understand. You don't understand. Have you been demonstrating for the last? Ten years, every time you do peaceful, artistic, this is what gets documented. <laughs> <Everybody thinks laughs>
5: are Footage has also emerged of so-called anarchists running across police lines and being protected by police. Earlier this week, Dan Dix of PressForTruth.ca joined the Corbett Report to discuss the actions of the provocateurs.
6: A lot of uh, police uh, cruisers were we were left in the middle of of um, key intersections. And um, we have, uh, you know, riot police uh, backing off from the area and leaving these cars alone. Um, One of the cars in particular was there for up to six hours, left alone, no cops anywhere. And uh, that's when the uh, supposed black block had set fire uh, to the cars. And now it's interesting that these cars were allowed to burn for uh, upwards of more than an hour. They were reduced to almost molten uh, metal. And that is because of uh, uh, they needed the media photo photowalk to be able to uh, post that all over the place so people would say, look at what these bad protesters are doing. But what people should really be asking themselves is... You know, the Canadian government spent $1.2 billion on security, and, and they'll have us believe that they couldn't stop a group of, of 30 or 40 black black guys from, from smashing up the city and, you know, blowing up a bunch of police cars. It, it just does not make any sense whatsoever.
5: Pressure continues to mount this week from protesters who have claimed abuse at the hands of Summit Security. In one of the most disturbing allegations, independent journalist Amy Miller talks, uh, talks about how protesters were sexually threatened and even physically violated after being detained at G20 protests.
0: I was throttled at the neck and held down uh, and then I was detained for nearly 13 hours. I was placed in a cell uh, at the Toronto Film Studio. And I was in a cell with 25 other young women for approximately 13 hours. Throughout the time that I was detained, I was told many statements that I find repulsive and completely inappropriate and what I view as threats. I was told I was going to be raped. I was told I was going to be gang-banged. I was told that they were going to make sure that I was never going to want to act as a journalist again by making sure that I would be repeatedly raped while I was in jail. When I was in the detention centre, I saw numerous young women uh, who were completely strip searched, uh, who weren't strip searched by officer male, who were strip searched by male officers, and one young woman when she was coming out who was completely traumatised said that she had had a finger put up her.
5: On Wednesday, Charlie Veach of the London-based Love Police was detained again as he was attempting to board a flight back to the UK at Pearson International Airport. As we reported last week, Veach had been arrested the previous Friday for failing to comply with the non-existent law supposedly requiring him to show his ID to police while in the imaginary 5-meter zone near the security fence. This week, Veach was detained and charged with impersonating a police officer. He was released on $500 bail. Other people detained as part of Summit Security included Brian Barrett, a medieval role-playing enthusiast whose homemade armor and padded arrows were displayed at a Toronto police press conference as examples of dangerous weapons that had been seized by summit security, along with a chainsaw and crossbow seized from a man that even the police admitted had nothing to do with the G20 summit. Rallies continued to be held across Canada, protesting the actions of summit security and the $1.3 billion that Canadian taxpayers paid for it. In other news this week, the American and Israeli case for attacking Iran continues to fall apart as parallels to the Bush administration's lies about Iraq's non-existent weapons of mass destruction haunt the current administration. In the latest development, a much-typed story from December 2009 revealing that Iran was developing a neutron initiator, a key triggering device for a nuclear weapon, was based on a forged document. IPS cites Philip Giraldi, an ex-CIA counterterrorism official, as saying that the U.S. had nothing to do with producing the forgery and that Israel is the likely perpetrator, although British intelligence is also suspected of having a role in forging the document. This incident mirrors the infamous yellowcake forgeries that were first cited in October 2001 as proof that Iraq was seeking to reconstitute its nuclear weapons program. Those documents, too, were revealed to be forgeries of indeterminate origin. Despite the fact that the case against Iran is beginning to look more and more like the case against Iraq in 2002, and despite the fact that his own agency has affirmed and reaffirmed that there is no evidence of a secret Iranian weapons program, CIA Director Leon Panetta appeared on ABC News this week to bolster the perception that Iran is an imminent nuclear threat. The 2007 national intelligence estimate said all of Iran's work on nuclear weapons ended in 2003. You don't still believe that, do you?
2: I think they continue to develop their know-how, they continue to develop uh, their nuclear capability. Including weaponization? I think they continue to uh, work on uh, designs in that area.
5: Former Assistant Treasury Secretary Paul Craig Roberts appeared on the Corbett Report earlier this week to talk about the possibility of war with Iran.
7: Uh, we have all kinds of claims made about nuclear weapons programs, all of which have been refuted by the International Atomic Energy Agent, uh, Agency's uh, weapons inspectors on the ground in Iran. Uh, the, the refutations of the charges do not come merely from the Iranian government, but from the International Atomic Energy Agency. So. There, there's no evidence of any weapon program. There is the the assertion uh, by the United States government that Iran has one. It's the same kind of baseless, groundless, fabricated assertion that they made about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. And what we have today uh, in the modern world is the ability of... Blatant propaganda obvious lies to take all precedence over facts.
5: Now stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for episode 136 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Allegory of the Curtain, where we ask the question, Do you want to pay attention to the man behind the curtain? Welcome, my friends, to episode 136 of the Corbett Report, The Allegory of the Curtain. As I'm sure my well-informed audience is already well aware, an allegory is a way of representing a truth in a symbolic way, usually through recourse to a short story or a parable. And perhaps the best-known allegory about how we can be distracted from encountering the real truths about the world around us is Plato's nearly 2,400-year-old allegory of the cave.
1: Imagine prisoners that have spent their entire lives chained deep inside a cave. They have been chained so that they cannot see behind themselves. And they are forced to stare endlessly at the cave wall in front of them. Behind them, a fire is burning. And between the prisoners and the fire is a raised walkway. Now imagine that each day, a menagerie of objects crosses the walkway. Animals and people carrying their wares to market their shapes create an intricate shadow play on the wall in front of the prisoners this is the only world that the prisoners have ever known the shadows and the echoes of unseen objects now Imagine that a prisoner is released. After some time adjusting to the blinding light, the freed prisoner will begin to experience the world outside of the cave for the very first time. And it is like nothing he could have ever imagined. With his new perception of the world, the man will of course want to return to his friends to share his incredible discoveries. But the prisoners cannot recognize their old friend. He appears as all things do. His voice is a distorted echo, and his body is a grotesque shadow. They cannot understand his fantastic stories of the world outside of the cave. To them, it will never exist. This, of course, does not make the world outside of the cave any less real.
5: Yes, the allegory of the cave, nearly 24 centuries old now, but still quite well known, and in fact almost universally known, if not in its original form in Plato's Republic, at the very least in some of the many, many, many incarnations of the cave allegory that have filtered down through media of various sorts over the centuries, and even today in our own age, we continue to relate the allegory of the cave in different ways, and obviously the most famous example of that from our own age would be the Matrix, which of course turns out to be just a variation on the cave allegory because it is such a powerful way of relating such a basic idea about our place in the world and how we come to understand the world and what we do not understand about the world, that, yes, we do tend to go back to those same simple stories time and time again, just with different overlays, just replace the cave with an electronic-generated computer reality, for instance. But at any rate, it's now time to turn to the allegory of The Curtain, And we're going to start examining this allegory, which perhaps is just another incarnation of the cave allegory when all is said and done. But at the very least, it's a different allegory and it helps us approach the issue in a different way. So let's listen today to a clip from The Alex Jones Show from November 2009 when Alex Jones was interviewing John Ronson, who at that time was promoting the movie The Men Who Stare at Goats, which was based on a book which he had written, a best-selling book. Now, for those who are not familiar with John Ronson, I'll simply say for you to go and investigate him for yourself so that I don't prejudge him for you or color your conception by saying too much about him, but suffice it to say that uh, John Ronson has had a great deal of uh, dealings with the conspiracy universe, I suppose you could term it, over the years, and has uh, been involved in many adventures with people like David Icke and Alex Jones and others, and has written about them extensively. And that's kind of his claim to fame, although he has done other things besides. But it this conversation they begin to talk about an experience that they shared back in July of 2000 when they both crashed the Bohemian Grove. Now, for people who don't remember what the Bohemian Grove is, basically it is an annual secretive elite meeting of very rich and powerful people in the redwoods of Northern California in a highly secretive and completely fenced-off grove that is only available to their elite membership and certain gay porn stars who are flowing in for the occasion. But for those who are interested in more about the Bohemian Grove and its significance, I highly recommend you go back and listen to episode 42 of the Corbett Report podcast. But to refresh your memory, or perhaps to introduce you to... Just some of the interesting things that happen there. Let's listen to just a little bit of the Cremation of Care Ceremony, which opens the, the Bohemian Grove each year, and in which a mock human sacrifice is enacted for the assembled elite ruling crowd.
3: Fire shall have its will of thee, beyond all care, and all
6: the winds they carry with thy dust. Air fellowships eternal flame. Once again, this summer sets
8: us free!
5: What a friendly little ritual. Well, is there anything going on behind it? Well, let's pick up the conversation between John Ronson and Alex Jones as they talk about their encounter with the Cremation of Care ritual when they trespassed into the Bohemian Grove, and Alex Jones, of course, snuck out that footage from the Bohemian Grove, and you can watch Dark Secrets Inside Bohemian Grove for free in online in its entirety, and I highly suggest you do so if you haven't already. But let's listen to their conversation where they begin talking about the cremation of care ritual. And that leads on to some related but perhaps different manifestations of their fundamental disagreement.
3: During the break, we were talking about Bohemian Grove. He's getting interviewed for Jesse Ventura's TV show, one of the last interviews they're doing on Skull and Bones, on Bohemian Grove, on Bilderberg. Uh, because he has a differing view than I do, but but, but not that big of a view uh, change. Uh, uh, you so- know,
8: the, the thing we really agree on is, you know, I thought what I saw was kind of stupid, and you thought what, what we saw inside Bohemian Grove was, you know, proofs of Satanism and so on, and I didn't. But what we agree on is that the participants in the ritual at Bohemian Grove seem to take it really seriously, and that's a really interesting question.
3: Yes, you were there in the crowd as they were engaging in the mock human sacrifice, the effigy of a boy. And, I mean, were the old men not grinding their teeth and and, and making sexual pleasure noises? Were they not in a raptured state?
8: (laughs) Well, they did seem to. I I don't know if I'd I'd use those exact words. I I didn't think of a sexual pleasure or something. But they did seem to be, like, really into it, you know, like really uh, intense about it. And and you noticed that, and I noticed that, and and it was strange. And I came away thinking, you know, frankly, that I was the most sane person in the entire Redwood Forest because I I didn't agree with with you and Mike's interpretation of the ceremony, but also I could see that you know that the, the participants were taking it just as seriously as you were, and I and I did find that very odd. And in fact, that was the kind of germ of the idea, you know, this idea of kind of. Bubbles of craziness at the heart of power that eventually led on to me writing the at Goats. You know, really, the at Goats was kind of began to form in my mind that night when we were at Bohemian Grove.
3: Well, I mean, from 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 meeting you out at Waco more than ten years ago to today, I've seen you in BBC and CNN interviews that you've changed your views, because 10 years ago you'd laugh, there was no global government, there was no secret room, there wasn't a plan. And then three or four years later, I'd see you say, no, there really is a Bilderberg group, they really do want a world government, uh, but but you can differ on what their plans are, or argue about, are they really in control? Now they're openly announcing a global carbon tax, a world government, we're going to pay our taxes to a private bank of the world, Uh, They have the Framework Convention on Climate Change. They're saying Al Gore is a prophet and that his new movie is about how it's a global religion of the earth. And, uh, I mean, John, a lot has changed. What's your view now on the new world order? Does it still not exist?
8: Well, I mean, what you're saying now about kind of what stuff might have leaked out of, you know, recent Bilderberg meetings, I don't know. I've not read the minutes uh, of the last few years' meeting, so I can't comment on that. But the reason why I said that I felt that, you know, their agenda was, to an extent, a creation of world government is because that's what one of the founding members of the Bilderberg Group said to me on the record. It was uh, it was Dennis Healy, Lord Healy, uh, who was one of the, you know, the first people to set up Bilderberg. And, and he said to say that we were striving for a world government is exaggerated but not wholly unfair. Those, those are his actual words. He said because basically, you know, Bilderberg was set up post-Second World War and they saw that, you know, that, that the last thing the world needed was a politician who was too much of an ideologue. You know, they didn't want any more Hitlers. So they kind of figured a world government where politics wasn't really in the hands of politicians. It was much more about the flow of capital. You know, that, that seemed to have been the reason why Bilderberg is a kind of centrist globalist thing was was set up so yeah so so that there we are not in
3: disagreement either but john you i mean the mainstream media still out of one side of their mouth says there's no such thing as a world government and then out of the other side of their mouth they say yes it's a great thing and it's going to be non-democratic and authoritarian because we the wise men know best i.e financial times of london headline and now for world government i mean here is the new york times two weeks ago ban Ki moon uh, and it says uh, Ban Ki-moon, uh, uh, again, is the author of this. And he went on to say in the article that global government is what we need. He goes on in the article to say one world government is what we need and that carbon taxes will be the funding mechanism for this. I mean, this is authoritarian. This is unelected. This system is not democratic and you find out the very same wise men that created Hitler and created Mussolini are the very wise men that created Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein or their sons did
8: well my my theory about Bilderberg is that their vision back in the early 1950s post the Second World War uh, was in, in their minds quite idealistic they thought that Uh, A a safer way of running the world, having just lived through Mussolini and Hitler, a safer way would be to de-ideologue the politicians and to put power in the hands of business, because businessmen only care about the flow of money, they don't care about politics and ideologies but of course you know what what the last 50 years has taught us is that ceos can be just as corrupt as politicians and frequently are so you know that that's my view on bilderberg is that it was an idealistic vision which like all idealistic visions went wrong
3: well have you read where uh, it's been declassified now that hitler was on mi5 payroll and so was mussolini
8: I don't know anything about that. I, I can't comment on that because I know nothing about it. I'd be, yeah, I'd be interested
3: in reading the link. Yeah, that's London Guardian, which you write for, Times of London. Uh, I mean, we already knew this from Milner Group uh, declassified documents. And uh, yeah. but, uh, yeah, no. Well, I mean, you know about Edward the Eighth being oh. a Nazi, right?
8: Well, yeah, I mean, there's no question that, that a whole load of the you know ruling gentry of Britain and during the rise of the Nazi Party, you know, loved the Nazis and they were constantly inviting the Nazis over the British ruling classes and you know putting them up for tea and you know there's a wonderful novel about that called The Remains of the Day. So you know, there's 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 no question that that was going on. Uh, you know, the Mitfords. So I can't remember which Mitford was it. Was it?
3: Well, what happened is the British said, "You go ahead and attack. We're going to back you." And then they flip flopped at the end. And that's why the deputy Fuhrer flew over Rudolf Hess and got captured. The issue is, John, it's all been declassified now and it was all staged. Hitler was set up. So, so th- this, this corporate group of bankers that set up Bilderberg, Prince Bernhard, the Nazi, and all the rest of them, this is all a big giant joke. I mean, you know about Prince Philip and all his calls for eugenics. I mean, you've certainly heard uh, those statements. I mean, have you read the White House Science Czar's own publication? Eco science calling for putting poison in the water to sterilize us. Have you seen this, John? Oh. Uh,
8: I know nothing
3: about that. But, and also, you
8: know, I, I firmly believe that, you know, we know that there, that some of the, uh, some of the founders of the Bilderberg group, you know, did have Nazi ties. I think it was, uh, I think it was, was Prince it Prince Bernhardt. Bernhardt. Was it Joseph Ressing as well? Or just yes, yes. But but, I, but per, my personal view, and, you know, this is the kind of non-conspiratorial view, is that that's not an important fact. And, you know, the important fact was that they, these were people who were kind of idealistic globalists. I mean, that's, but, that's but hold on. Bilderberg
3: view. has released 1954 documents from their founding after all these years saying they didn't exist where they said we're going to create a European Union, we're going to create a global government. I mean – you know, this whole time they've been lying about it and then now at the final moment they spring it on the public
8: well that's interesting that would be interesting to read definitely i mean that doesn't surprise me the idea that you know that, that a single currency and a european union was kind of high on bilderberg's agenda back in the 50s that that doesn't surprise me at all
5: i know nothing about that nothing at all nothing whatsoever Yeah, John, I'm sure you don't. Anyway, yes, that's uh, John Ronson and Alex Jones, and I I think the listeners out there will be able to tell the general gist of that conversation, and it really is a fascinating back and forth there that I I find extremely interesting to listen to, and I hope you do as well. And if you do, of course, I will uh, include the link in the documentation section for today's episode, so you can go and listen to the entire interview uh, for free online. But uh, let's cut to the chase, then. Uh, Let's cut a little bit later in the conversation when they come back to the cremation of care ritual at the bohemian grove and we finally get to the allegory of the curtain.
3: John, you talk about tip of the iceberg. I've been studying globalist and if you went deeper down the rat hole, deeper down the rabbit hole, you would find that the reason those old men were getting so upset or focused on the mock human sacrifice that you thought was silly was because they understand it was all symbolized and was symbols of something much, much deeper, and that all of this system is just simply the surface of something. Look at Skull and Bones, that video ABC News got, with them screaming and yelling and worshiping Satan and, you know, practice mock murders of young girls.
8: Look at... The the, Ron Rosenbaum video, right? That was shot like a cross, you know, right, 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 yeah.
3: But, I mean, that's my point, John, is that they take it serious because the real ritual was not the image of the boy being burned. It was whatever happened behind those black curtains across the water. That's when the old men really got upset and really started growling and 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 breathing heavily next to me. And it wasn't one or two or three or four. The whole group around me were doing this. Mike Hansen, who snuck in with me, witnessed it. And so, I mean, I'm telling you. These people are out of their minds. They're crazy, and so you or I, normal people, look at this and it looks ridiculous. This is not ridiculous to them.
8: Well, again, this is where I kind of agree and disagree with you because where I disagree with you, because I'm not, you know, conspiratorial minded, because I, is, is that I believe that what we saw at Bohemian Grove was all that was going on that night. I don't believe there was anything going on behind the curtains. Uh, however, where I do agree with you is that the the people who go to Skull and Bones and go to Bohemian Grove do seem to be into this idea of ritual and and symbolism. I I agree with you there. And so you have to ask yourselves, well, why? And one person, actually, who was involved with Skull and Bones said to me that... uh, uh, she, the woman, she said that her interpretation of the of their kind of being intellectual was that it kind of gives you a sort of mandate, you know, sort of gives you a kind of, sort of sense of superiority and a mandate to put yourself in a position of power, and that's why these Ivy League universities, um, you know, do all this kind of stupid, crazy stuff, and and why these ideas live on in the in you know, in, in when they get into the, the business world in places like Bohemian Grove. But I don't believe at all that what we saw was any kind of actual human sacrifice. It was just a papier am well, I'm not.
3: I'm not saying I believe an actual human sacrifice was going on. I'm saying more was happening than meets the eye. And think about your statement. I don't believe anything was happening behind the curtain. You know, that's kind of a philosophical worldview on the planet itself. I believe there is something going on behind the curtain. And nine times out of ten, when we pull the curtain back... The real show's going on behind the curtain, John Ronson. I mean, look at how you wrote Men Who Stare at Goats. Just all this insane stuff going on.
5: And there you have it, the allegory of the curtain. Rich, powerful men meet in complete secrecy in the dark, foreboding redwood groves of Northern California each summer to commit a ritual, and they erect a black curtain behind which something occurs which excites the people who are watching and then they row their boat across the little pond to reach the 40-foot stone owl where they put their effigy and uh, they burn it in a really interesting ceremony. And that ultimately is what the allegory of the curtain is about. What takes place behind the curtain and do we care what takes place behind the curtain? And as an allegory, as I've said, this only functions insofar as it really tells us something broader about human nature. And what I think the allegory of the curtain tells us is that there are fundamentally two different types of people on this planet. The people who believe and want to believe and have part of their self invested in believing that there is meaning to what's happening behind the curtain, there is a reason for the curtain and there is something happening behind there, and the people who believe and want to believe and have part of their identity invested in believing, the exact opposite, that there is nothing behind the curtain, that it is all lunacy, and that there's nothing worth seeing going on. And it's my belief that this dichotomy, these two types of people, play a very important part in conveying and communicating effectively the type of information that we're dealing with on a week-to-week basis on the Corbett Report. Fundamentally, there are people out there who will not, cannot, and simply won't accept that there is anything going on behind the curtain. And the question is, how do you deal with that type of person? Well, it's very interesting because When we think of it in this manner, we don't have to have people like John Ronson necessarily being part of the cover-up, part of the conspiracy in a knowing sense. All he has to do is genuinely believe that there is nothing going on behind the curtain and act accordingly. And when he does so, he will say, there is nothing happening behind the curtain, therefore I don't want to look behind the curtain. It would be a waste of my time. And as ridiculous and incomprehensible as that seems to me in certain situations, unfortunately it is not just John Ronson, but many, many, many people in the world who make the exact same argument. And one of them that came up very recently was Chip Berlay, who definitely does not want to peek behind the curtains of Bilderberg.
4: And we're joined by Chip Belay, an investigative journalist and sceptic, indeed, as he is, of the Bilderberg conspiracy theorist. Mr Belay, evening to you. Well, as we saw there, the gathering's been held in Spain this year, a country that's, of course, no stranger to the tough economic times of late, as we just heard in that report, even worries it could uh, go the same right. way as Greece down the financial plug hole. I- is that the type of story, the type of uh, thing that's going to be topping the agenda of the Bilderberg meeting over the last two days? Even tonight, of course, as we heard, the euro's trading at a four-year low. People have every right to be angry. Angry at
2: financial uh, networks, and they have every right to, em- to demand accountability. But this idea that the Bilderberger group is a secret elite force that controls the world economy and is building a new wo- world order is a giant pot of spoiled borscht made from rotten beets. <laughs> These claims go back to the late 1700s. There are a lot of malarkey. Uh there are fifteen or twenty other similar groups that have secret meetings. Most meetings between corporate leaders and government officials are secret. The press is not invited to them. This is a hoax carried out by people who believe in an elaborate fairy tale about how power is exercised in the world.
4: But hang on, Chip, if you were to put your PR advisor's hat on tonight, you, don't you think there's anything remotely sinister about this annual meeting, but no matter that it goes in every year, we don't know what's contained in it. It's not really great PR, is it, to shroud themselves with all this secrecy and type security is bound to breed conspiracy theories. Why is the group so camera shy, then?
2: Well, look, uh, you know, of course you're right. From a PR perspective, it's idiotic to have secret meetings with secret guest lists and a secret agenda. So, of course, that encourages conspiracy theories. But you also have the Trilateral Commission, you have the Council on Foreign Relations, you have the Club of Rome, you have dozens of dozens of these elite formations. And yes, they talk over policy, but the organization itself has no power. Powerful people with huge security apparatus show up at these hotels and of course they lock down the hotels. Uh, you know, I'm an investigative reporter. I'm annoying. I try and sneak into meetings. And of course, security keeps me out. Uh, this this fantastic set of allegations is, is a stage play for the reporters.
4: But these, are, as you just said yourself, are powerful people with a lot of world influence. Surely they're going to take back to their respective camps some of what they've talked about at said meeting. And that is going to have an effect on the global scene, isn't it?
2: And, and that effect will be covered by the media of dozens and dozens of nations. And and the the uh, the policies that are formulated don't uh, hold any power within the nation. The people who go to the meeting, there's only like two or three people from each country. They go back to their country and say, "Hey, I heard this at the Bilderberger meeting. What do you think?" And the the national assembly or the powerful people say, "I think it's a lot of malarkey. Take it back and shove it someplace." So this idea that this is plot that is carried out to 30 or 40 countries and implemented is
4: baloney. (laughs) How can you be so sure about what you're saying here because it's such a secretive organiser, such a secretive group indeed, how can you be so sure about that and if it has no influence what's the point of it all?
2: Uh, Of course these people have influence and they want to talk about how to expand their power and we should object to the way powerful and rich people manipulate the world economy to their benefit. I have no problem with that. But how am I so sure? These same allegations were made in the late 1790s against the Illuminati, then the Freemasons, then the Jesuits, then the Jewish bankers in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion from Russia, an apocalyptic conspiracy theory about Jewish bankers. Then it was the Rockefellers. Then it was the Council on Foreign Relations. And a lot of these people who make a big deal about the Bilderbergers really have this closet agenda of trying to suggest to you it's the Jewish bankers like the Rothschilds. And if you're, if you're talking about the folks from the American Free Press, that's their agenda. That's an organization that was founded by one of the biggest anti-Semitic neo-fascist conspiracy theorists in the world, Willis Carto. So, yes, I've investigated both sides of this question, and I'm quite
4: sure of what I'm saying. Please, good to have you on the program tonight. Chip Berlay, investigative journalist. Thanks for being on RT.
5: Oh, you're quite sure of what you're saying, are you, Mr. Berlay? Well, that's uh, that's good to know. That's reassuring. So, so what are you saying exactly? You're saying that, yes, these are rich and powerful people, as you admit. And yes, they do gather in complete secrecy every year um, behind closed doors, members of business and government getting together, and yes, they do talk about things of world importance and policy ideas, and then nothing transpires because of this, and there's absolutely no reason for people to be interested in this conference or to even want to know what's discussed there, and if you do, it's probably because you're anti-Semitic. Yes, Mr. Berlay, that explains very clearly to me which side of the uh, beh- uh, the allegory of the curtain you stand on, and that's the side of the people who do not want you to look behind the curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I'm sure he's probably not doing anything important. Therefore, let's all go and look at something else. So, yes, so right there, we have absolutely the crystal clear example of someone who is very much against the idea of looking behind the curtain and of course it does not take an Einstein, it does not take a a genius to put together the fact that the Bilderberg Group is dictating policy and there is an effect going on when these people meet behind that curtain and we don't have to go very far in order to discover that and we can go to a pretty authoritative source. Let's turn to PrisonPlanet.com, June 7th, 2010. Former NATO Secretary General admits Bilderberg sets global policy. Quote, Former NATO Secretary General and Bilderberg member Willie Claes has confounded claims by debunkers that the secret organization which met in Sitges, Spain, over the last few days does not set policy admitting during a Belgian radio interview that Bilderberg ten- attendees are mandated to implement decisions that are formulated during the annual Conference of Power Brokers. In a radio interview reported on by the Belgian news website zonwind.be, Claes told host Cohn Fillett that Bilderberg does indeed decide policy for the coming year. Claes would certainly be in a position to know, being a two-time Bilderberg attendee, as well as the 8th Secretary-General of NATO from 1994 until 1995. Clay said that Bilderberg guests are are normally given around 10 minutes of talk time, after which a report is compiled of their presentation. The participants are then obviously considered to use this report in setting their policies in the environments in which they affect, stated Clay's according to the translated text. End quote. Yes, Yes, we even have NATO Secretary Generals admitting that Bilderberg sets global policy. And yes, this does take place completely out of public scrutiny, completely behind a curtain that is impenetrable to you or I. And the question is, should we care? Well, I will not deign to answer that question for you. I'm sure you're perfectly capable of answering it for yourself. Not to belabor the point, but yes, Bilderberg does affect global policy. And we could even turn to an article that I wrote last June, June 2009, for CorbettReport.com. Bilderberg 2009 Intel Already Proving Accurate. And that reads in part, quote, Observers of the annual elitist confab known as Bilderberg have long known that plans discussed at the conference quickly become reality. In 2002, Bilderberg researcher Jim Tucker correctly predicted that the Iraq war would start in March 2003, not late 2002, as many were predicting at the time. In 2006, Daniel Estulin correctly forecast the popping of the housing bubble and subsequent economic crash, a possibility that most talking heads in the corporate media were laughing at at the time. In 2008, Tucker forecast a dramatic drop in oil prices, while most analysts were fretting about the possibility of $200 a barrel oil. Tucker and Eschilden have proven so stunningly accurate in their predictions, not because they have a crystal ball, but because they have sources inside the Bilderberg Group and other organizations where financial oligarchs and their political puppets make decisions about our geopolitical future. End quote. And yes, that is exactly the point that Alex Jones was trying to make in that clip with John Ronson, where he states that every time we look behind the curtains, there is something going on there. So yes, looking behind the curtain is an important and fruitful activity, I might venture to posit. Well, of course, that all sounds quite vague, so let's get down to some brass tacks and let's start taking a look at some examples. What are some examples of taking a peek behind the curtain and finding out, oh, yes, that's exactly what we thought was going on? Well, let's start by taking a look at uh, going back to someone that we've talked about in this podcast before, and that is Carol Quigley, who was the Georgetown historian who got access to the secret records of the Council on Foreign Relations and various other branches of the uh, Rhodes-Milner Roundtable groups that have branched out into all of the Commonwealth nations and, of course, in the United States as the Council on Foreign Relations. And during his time researching the, the secret records of the Council on Foreign Relations, Carol Quigley uncovered some really incredibly astounding facts about the world and the way the world is really run. But uh, no, very few people have bothered to actually read what he wrote, even though Carol Quigley was name-checked by name by uh, Bill Clinton during his acceptance speech at the Democratic National Convention back in 1992. But still, no matter, people won't read what he wrote. So why don't I read a little bit of it for you from Tragedy and Hope? Quote, "the power of financial capitalism had another far-reaching plan nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole this system was to be controlled in a feudalistic fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at at frequent meetings and conferences the apex of the system" was to be the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. Each central bank, in the hands of men like Montague Norman of the Bank of England, Benjamin Strong of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, Charles Rist of the Bank of France, and Hjalmar Schacht of the Reichsbank, sought to dominate its government by its ability to control treasury loans to manipulate foreign exchanges to influence the level of economic activity in the country and to influence cooperative politicians by subsequent rewards in the business world. End quote. Well, that, of course, is a very startling claim, so it's being claimed that the Bank for International Settlements is coordinating the central banks of the world, which, of course, as we know, are really private corporations, and as Carol Quigley admits in that passage, are privately owned corporations, and these central banks are working in concert through the BIS to implement a world government arrived at in secret meetings. What an extraordinarily bold claim about what is going on behind the curtain. So is there any truth to this? Well, let's start taking a look at some very, very recent events. And we'll go back to February of this year to news.com.au. Secret Summit of Top Bankers. Quote, The world's top central bankers began arriving in Australia yesterday as renewed fears about the strength of the global economic recovery gripped world share markets. Representatives from 24 central banks and monetary authorities, including the U.S. Federal Reserve and European Central Bank, landed in Sydney to meet tomorrow at a secret location, the Herald Sun reports. Organized by the Bank for International Settlements last year, the two-day talks are shrouded in secrecy with high-level, high-level security believed to have been invoked by law enforcement agencies. The arrival of the high-powered gathering coincided with a fresh meltdown of world share markets sparked by renewed concerns about global growth and sovereign debt. Quote. Well, there, my friends, is the curtain. And did we find out what was happening behind the curtain? Yes, we did. April 29th, 2010. Trichet calls for corrupt BIS to boss global government in CFR speech. Quote, In a speech before the elitist Council on Foreign Relations Organization in New York earlier this week, President of the European Central Bank, Jean-Claude Trichet, called for the imposition of global governance to be bossed by the G20 and the corrupt Bank of International Settlements in the name of safeguarding the global economy. In an address entitled Global Governance Today... Trichet pro- proclaims how the elite need to impose, quote, a set of rules, institutions, informal groupings, and cooperation mechaniz- mechanisms that we call global governance, end quote. During the course of the speech, Trichet uses the term global governance well over a dozen times, outlining how global governance is of the essence to avoid another financial crisis. A full transcript of the speech was also carried by the Bank for International Settlements, an international organization of central banks that has constantly lobbied for a centralized global currency to replace that of nation-states. Trichet praises the BIS as being ahead of the curve in dealing with the financial crisis during the speech. The primary outfit that will boss the institutions of global governance, according to Trichet, is the Global Economy Meeting, GEM, which regularly meets at the BIS headquarters in Basel. This group, states Trichet, has become the prime group for global governance among central banks. The GEM is basically a policy steering committee under the umbrella of the Bank for International Settlements. End quote. So, this startling claim that apparently few people have bothered to read and fewer still have really bothered to take to heart by Carol Quigley many decades ago that, yes, there was indeed plans, far-reaching plans, to establish a world government of bankers run by the Bank for International Settlements has, well, is in the process of coming to fruition, as is openly admitted by the participants. And yet, with simply erecting a tiny curtain of secrecy around their annual meetings and secret conferences in far-flung reaches of the globe, they can erect the curtain which will force certain people to actually turn away and not inquire into what's happening a very very interesting strategy simply erecting a curtain will make some turn away from this information because it must be crazy conspiracy theory what's another concrete example of this process at work? Well, let's take a look at a different article, this time from July of last year, July 13th 2009 from PrisonPlanet.com Obama science czar's plan to sterilize population through water supply, already happening Quote, Shocking proposals to mass sterilize the population by artificially medicating municipal water supplies, which were outlined by President Obama's top science czar in his 1977 book Ecoscience, are already in effect as global sperm counts drop and gender-bending chemicals pollute our rivers and lakes. As we highlighted on Saturday, alongside John B. Holdren's advocacy for a global planetary regime to enforce forced abortion, government seizure of children born out of wedlock, and mandatory bodily implants designed to prevent pregnancy, Obama's top advisor also called for adding a sterilant to drinking water or staple foods. Holdren added that the sterilant must meet stiff requirements in that it must only affect humans and not livestock. Quote, It must be uniformly effective despite widely varying doses received by individuals and despite varying degrees of fertility and sensitivity among individuals. It must be free of dangerous or unpleasant side effects and it must have no effect on members of the opposite sex, children, old people, pets or livestock wrote Holdren with co-authors Paul Ehrlich and Anne Ehrlich. Holdren notes that the proposal to forcibly mass-sterilize the public against their will seems to horrify people, and yet it doesn't seem to bother him too much amidst the myriad of other totalitarian Dr. Strangelove-style ideas that are put forward in the book as a way to carry out an aggressive agenda of population reduction. Global sperm counts have dropped by a third since 1989, and by half in the past 50 years. The rate of decline is only accelerating as more and more couples find it harder to have children. In studies of white European men, the rate of decline is as much as 50% in the last 30 years. In Italy, this equates to a native population reduction of 22% by 2050, Population reduction is already occurring amongst native residents in many areas of Europe and America. Everything from cell phone signals to eating soy products to female hormones entering the water supply from HRT products has been blamed. There's no doubt that environmental pollution from industry and pharmaceutical products has contributed, but new research has uncovered that additional chemicals known as anti-androgens are now finding their way into the water supply. The University of Exeter is now working with chemists at the University of Sussex to establish exactly what the chemicals in question are and hence to understand how they are being released into wastewater, states the study. Antiandrogens are capable of preventing or inhibiting the biologic effects of androgens, male sex hormones, on normally responsive tissues in the body. Antiandrogens are given to transsexual men who want to become women, and they are also given to sex offenders released from prison to reduce their sexual libido. These substances have the effect of counteracting masculinization and effectively diminishing normal male biological characteristics associated with the release of testosterone. Antiandrogens used in pesticides sprayed on our food have also been identified as endocrine disruptors that have been demonstrated to induce demasculinization in rats. Yes, once again, we have the people planning exactly and telling us exactly what they're planning behind their curtains of their non-elected offices, and then we have the actual effects visible in the world around us, and yet to suggest that there is anything happening in the corridors of power that these creatures infest... Yes, that is crazy conspiracy theory, and we encounter this time and time and time and time again, and I'm sure my listeners as a whole will be well-informed on these and many, many other such instances. I would like to give another recommendation to a very, very well-put-together article on this subject, as it relates to one of the defining political events of our times, nine eleven, and this is from rigorousintuition.blogspot.com from 2004, and it's an article entitled The Coincidence Theorist's Guide to 9-11. It's an incredibly well-put-together article because it shows precisely the stupidity, the absolute moronic nature of the stubborn and ridiculous belief that not only is there nothing going on behind the curtain, but even wanting to know what's going on behind the curtain is a useless activity. Of course, it is not. There are things happening out, out of sight of what what is being reported to us through the corporate media, and it is our Duty as human beings on this planet who are concerned about the the state of the planet that we're leaving for future generations to want to be informed about what is happening and to question what authority is telling us about what authority is doing behind the curtain. It is not rocket science. It is not crystal ball stargazing. It is simply a matter of having the mental courage to look behind the curtain and see what is there. The question is, do you want to know what is happening behind the curtain? That's all for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me next week for episode 137 of the Corbett Report podcast, Signs, Symbols, and Sigils.
4: What can you do when the curtain falls? What will you do when the curtain falls? You're left right. Left